0: Bringing you the vitality of college radio and the diversity of community radio, 91.3 FM, WVUD, and WVUD HD1, Newark, Delaware. The views expressed in this program are those of the host and not necessarily those of WVUD or the University of Delaware. WVUD and UD Information Technologies present Campus Voices, conversations with University of Delaware faculty, staff, and students about their teaching, research, service projects, and other interests. To introduce today's guest, here's your host, Richard Gordon, Manager of the IT Communication Group at the University of Delaware.
1: Thank you, Jason. Actually, we've got two guests today from University Museums. We've got the director, Janice Tomlinson and the curator of African-American art, Julie McGee. Ladies, thanks so much for joining us on Campus Voices. Thank you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the University Museums program, Janice? I mean, how many of them? Where are they?
2: The University Museums encompasses three museums. Uh, The Old College Gallery in Old College, which features uh, visual art exhibitions. Mechanical Hall Gallery, dedicated to African-American art. And the Mineralogical Museum in Penny Hall.
1: And these are all open to the public, I think, pretty much Wednesday through Sunday, right?
2: Wednesday through Sunday, 12 to 5. We stay open late on Thursday evenings till 8 p.m.
1: And we've got some relatively extensive collections of our own, don't we, Janice?
2: Well, there's uh, a general sort of art collection that goes from Roman antiquities to contemporary painting. There is, of course, a mineralogical uh, collection that is curated by someone who isn't here today. And there's an African-American collection, and I'll let Julie speak to that since she curates it.
3: Yes, the University of Delaware has a, somewhere around the range of 700 to 800 objects that would fall under the rubric of African-American or African diasporic art, a large number of which were gifted to the University of Delaware by Paul R. Jones, and the other represent recent gifts or acquisitions to the University of Delaware. And those are housed and rotate on Exhibition and Mechanical Hall Gallery.
1: And the current exhibits, though, are not from, well, I guess the one the Mineralogical Museum, that's a that's a UD exhibit, is it not? It's a UD exhibit featuring recent gifts to the
2: university, yes.
1: But the other exhibits right now are traveling exhibits mm-hmm. that we rotate with our um, collection.
2: Exactly, uh, you know, to give the campus, the students, the Unity community, more diversity than our own collection can offer. We try to uh, bring in from time to time uh, exhibitions or uh, from other institutions, or in this case, two of the exhibitions were created, they're lone exhibitions, but they won't travel to other venues.
1: I was fortunate enough this week to be taken through those exhibits, and I just love them. mean, It's here in we're talking right now in September of 2013, and I think the current exhibits are in Old College and Mechanical will both be there through December? To December 8th. Julie, tell us about what you got over in in Mechanical Hall. I thought it was fascinating.
3: The exhibition is called Boxes, Combs, and Constellations. It's a two-person exhibition by artist Maren Hassinger and Sonia Clark. And I would begin by saying it represents a longer-term collaboration with the art department in the sense that both Marin Hassinger and Sonia Clark came to the University of Delaware last spring and worked with students under the rubric of the President's Diversity Initiative and taught in a foundation studio. Then the University Museums via Mechanical Hall Gallery offered them a two-person show And if you walk into the gallery, I don't know, Richard, you might want to say what your first experience was. I don't want to kind of steal the surprise, (laughs) but um, I can tell you the names. But how did you experience it when you first walked in?
1: The first person you walk in, you see Marin Hassinger's installation of all these boxes and containers from um, contemporary consumer culture. And I, I immediately started thinking, oh, this is the kind of thing, this is the logical extension of the kind of use of everyday things that Philistines like me think of going back to Andy Warhol. But, of course, it went back before that.
3: Yes, both Marin Hassinger and Sonia Clark work with what one would call ordinary objects from everyday culture, Sonia Clark works quite often with black plastic combs. Marin Hassender is working with the ordinary commercial cardboard box that she's been collecting for the past year to make into integrated sculptures that both hang from the ceiling in Mechanical Hall Gallery and sit in a, a kind of um, sculptural pattern on the floor.
1: I thought it was very arresting walking in and there am I greeted with all these brand names from my youth and my current life <laughs> arrayed before me.
3: It's definitely a commentary on American consumption and uh, American culture and food buying habits. Although not all the boxes represent food, they do represent things that we often buy. Um, and they were collected by the artist and her friends and colleagues. She lives in New York City up in Harlem.
1: What has other people's reactions been when they walk in and they're greeted by everything from Kellogg's cornflakes to, I don't know, Sitting there. I mean how have other people reacted? I know how I reacted.
3: Yeah, I think the universal reaction that I've heard from students when they first enter is wow. (laughs) And then there's a kind of pause and then people begin to identify food groups that they recognize in the sculptural boxes. And I think once you move out of the entrance gallery where Marin Hassinger's work is installed, you, you you reach the two other galleries where Sonia Clark's work is installed, which is much more meditative. And I think the contrast of those two, both working from different kinds of ordinary objects, is really informative for anyone that comes into the space.
1: That's a good point. I mean, because Ms. Hassinger's installation is not meditative. I mean, it's explosive. And, and, you know, you feel immediately like you're interacting with part of our culture.
3: Exactly. Exactly.
1: And then we go off into the next room, and we see Sonia Clark working with, of all things, hair, hair, combs, Ordinary Items.
3: Right, and I would say, since we just followed Stardate, that one of the works by Sonia Clark that also becomes part of the title of the exhibition, Boxes, Combs, and Constellations, is an installation done with hair and pins called Constellation, in which one finds the Big Dipper pointing to the North Star. And the North Star happens to be a railroad track. I think you noticed that when you were there in the gallery the other day. And that is an important constellation and reference for the Underground Railroad, the North Star being used by the Underground Railroad for escaping slaves who moved from the south to the north.
1: So that it's a very, I mean, you look at it from a distance, and it, you can see it's, if you will, it's reverse. It's black stars in a white field, and then up, up to the, top right corner is this ladder and there's a big dipper that points up to it that and it it does it ties right in with this historical theme exactly and yeah. it's relevant to Delaware
3: absolutely in terms of the underground railroad yes
1: the other thing that she does a lot of paper folding
3: Yes. And I think in this case, there's a wonderful correlation with the boxes that Maren Hassinger uses in the sense that one is a kind of commercial fold that is prefabricated that ends up being used into sculpt, made into sculptural forms by Maren Hassinger. But Sonia Clark, and this is where Maren Hassinger and Sonia Clark come together. They both are artists who work in a tradition of fiber arts. They both were trained in the early history of fiber. And the folded paper works that Sonia Clark does really goes, takes us back to the idea that paper is fiber. And with the paper through her hand, she folds them into beautiful abstract uh, reliefs and embossed patterns that then suggest a number of things.
1: They're very suggestive. I mean, they do suggest other things. Yes. That's a good way of putting it. Mm -hmm. They're also very subtle. Exactly. They yield... An awful lot of what they have upon close examination. I mean, you get it, but they have a different point of view, um, looking from far away. Now, some of the other things she does with hair, I just thought were fascinating.
3: Right, she literally draws with hair as though it was a graphite line, a line of a pencil.
1: It's her own hair.
3: Yes, it is her own hair. So it's
1: making the art very personally hers.
3: Yeah, she talks about hair as the carrier of the DNA, and she has one work that's called Making Something of Myself, which literally is hair and adhesive on paper with these beautiful drawings, and it really is making something of herself.
1: She also had an installation built where she had different colors, um, colored fabric, right, over a series of combs to make uh, rectangles?
3: Yes. Yes. What Sonia often does with her combs is wrap them with different colored threads, some of which are iridescent. They're, they're quite bright. And in this case, there's a series called The Interaction of Color, which pays homage to two important artists, Joseph Albers and Annie Albers, who emigrated to the U.S. They, were, uh, they met at the Bauhaus in Germany. They came to the U.S., and they both were interested in color theory and Textiles, early textile and fiber arts. Annie Albers was an early textile and fiber artist, and Joseph Albers wrote a book on the interaction of color, color theory, and the series of wrapped combs really homage, pay an homage to both of those artists and what they have given to us in the tradition of the history of art.
1: Uh, it's a very cool exhibit over there in Mechanical Hall, um, and it, it because it does. I, I like the fact that uh, Sonia Clark's work. That, As you just said, it's in context with the art world in general, but also in terms of Africa, African-American history and her own personal history.
3: Right, and it gives students who met both artists last spring and who heard them talk on campus a, uh, an opportunity to see them as professional exhibiting artists and then to meet them again in a new way. So we hope that it becomes a more lasting engagement with both of them.
1: Didn't you tell me that one of them's a professional dancer?
3: Marin Hassinger is also a performance artist and dancer. She's been dancing since she was a child and actually will be working with the UD Dance Minor Program in a collaboration. The first will be a teaser that will be next week on the 18th of September, and after that, in the spring, there'll be a dance performance that will involve Marin and her work and her installation in the gallery.
1: Then, right across the walkway in Old College, Janice, you've put together an amazing exhibition of. some prints that Goya made in, what, from about 1810 to 1814?
2: Yeah, about 200 years ago today. Uh, Spain at that time was devastated by the Napoleonic forces that had started entering the country in 1808 and stayed there, occupied the country until 1813. It was a it was the, the 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 it was a very cruel. It was a violent war. You had French soldiers who were underpaid and tired of fighting for Napoleon. You had uh, a Spanish army, but then you also had the guerrilla uh, war uh, fighters, the peasants who would, as one account said, uh, as one account said, you know, leave the village, seemingly going to the fields, but they would actually take a position in the mountains to shoot on French soldiers. So there were no rules in this war, and it was devastating to all in the peninsula. You know, Goya experienced it, experienced it from his home in Madrid. So his inspiration for the etchings of the disasters of war were really probably verbal accounts, hearsay, uh, and his own imagination to think of various subjects that he depicts.
1: It, it is his imagination it's his imaginative response to the horror that was going on in the country it's not him reporting the events
2: there's a mixture one can't say it's definitely one or the other but certainly there are scenes of uh corpses strewn on the battlefield that he could not have witnessed living in madrid there are other images of violent uh, atrocities, almost sort of secular martyrdoms of, freedom, of, of fighters. Again, images that probably come more from Goya coming out of a tradition of religious imagery of martyrdoms uh, that he knew from the royal collection and, and translating these into a what was then a more modern idiom. Other images, like the famine in Madrid, are something that uh, to be sure, he pulls on what he would have seen in Madrid you know as thousands of people fled the countryside that was being taken over by war and devastated by both Spanish and French soldiers who were looking for food and taking crops, uh, pillaging farms, whatever they could find. So these poor people tried to find refuge in Madrid, uh, living on the streets. Um, with no food, the government, you know, only capable of helping so much. You know, the idea of fleeing refugees, the idea of, of inhuman warfare, unfortunately are ideas that are very wi- much with us today and I think make these images still so relevant.
1: It's almost like you're describing what we consider a modern war. I mean, I used, you know, the, the historic commonplace is that, you know, through World War One, the the wars were fought with rules. but well, What you're talking about is with the Napoleonic expansion into Spain, this really was the first modern no-rules war.
2: The accounts that I read would certainly suggest that. Uh, and, you know, this was also an all-encompassing war because, again, you had the regular Spanish army, but you also had bands of peasants, bands of farmers who joined uh, in the fight against Napoleon to avenge something that happened to them, the destruction of their town, the burning of their village, the the violation of their wife, the murder of family members. So, um, yes, in that way, it, it was more like, you know, what we hear accounts of happening today. So how does one capture that in imagery? And that's the thing with Goya. How does one capture a war that is fought with no rules? You know, the traditional images of, of the valiant leader on horseback leading his, his, his forces into, uh, you know, and, or into a campaign that promises to work to his advantage, that, that imagery doesn't work.
1: And it's not there.
2: It's, it's not there in Goya. I mean, he, he really is revolutionary in how he makes the viewer confront what war really is about.
1: I'm trying to get Janice to actually say the title in Spanish.
2: I am. okay. The, the title of the war, the title of the exhibition is Goya's War, Los Desastre, Desastres de la Guerra. And I, I apologize to my Spanish-speaking colleagues who might be uh, listening. I have a hard time with uh, R's for the follow-up consonant in Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and I entitled it Goya's War because he does take this war and make it his own. Um, and give us, as I said, a kind of unique image. I- images. The other thing is at the end of the series that he created, the war and famine scenes, there is a subset of more allegorical images that offer political commentary, commentary on the church, probably created... After the Spanish, uh, the French forces had been expelled from Madrid, but before the return a year later of the Spanish king who would really clamp down on such um, liberal ideas, it was a year when politics were being openly discussed in the new, in the Spanish periodicals because what happened is there had been a government in exile that had created a fairly liberal constitution that the interim government imposed as the law of the land. But, and there was a lot of debate. Does this constitution represent the people? You know, how about its take towards the Inquisition, which it had banned? Are we in favor of that? There were all this discussion going on that I think inspired Goya to do some very obvious political images that, again, are still relevant today because they aren't just an, uh, an image of an individual politician uh, you know, being lampooned, but rather of an institution of the church, of, of the, of the uh, position of the church. There, there's, or, there's
1: that one where the, there's the prelate walking on a raggedy tightrope.
2: A tightrope that is sagging and tattering and about to fall in his precarious position. And he's balancing and doing a pirouette and seems totally... Um, um, unaware of what, of of his precarious position. And there are others of people worshipping relics, uh, you know, and they're dressed in old fa- costumes that would have been recognized by, at, at Goya's time, by being old-fashioned. So they are, their attitude, they are seen as anachronisms, you know, and he's saying, you know, and he also leads us, well, why are they worshipping these desiccated corpses, you know? Why are these people burdened by these these dolls dressed as nuns and virgins? You know, why do we worship these things? What do they mean? Now... This might lead people to think that Goya was not a Catholic. Goya, indeed, what is amazing is Goya was very much a Catholic. You know, he writes his letters and say, you know, may God help me. You know, may the, uh, you know, he, 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 he painted some incredibly beautiful religious images for churches mm-hmm. and altarpieces. What he is more, uh, what he, what he questions though is the rule of the institutionalized church. And you know, I think this questioning of institutions is something that again makes these images relevant to what we have today.
1: now these in some ways were very private works because he didn't they were not published during his lifetime. These were all exactly. relatively small mm-hmm. etchings um, and he made the plates, obviously, but then they weren't published till years after his death
2: exactly, exactly. and by the time they were published in eighteen sixty three by that time we all, we already had people photographers uh, who had, who had done photographs of the Crimean War or closer to home the photography of the Civil War that's been featured recently in exhibitions and when people saw goya then they immediately interpreted him as realism as proto photographic as anticipating photography which of course you know 50 years earlier goya had no idea that this would happen and that this would be when you know, his his images would come to light at a point when the very imaging of war had been totally transformed by by photography.
1: But I would counter that and say that you can also see the influence of fifteenth, sixteenth, seventeenth century religious art, particularly on some exactly. of the, the earlier um, etchings in this series.
2: I I certainly agree with that, and I think people have to see it. That's why in this, uh, I I really try to present the images so people see them within the time that Goya created them and not as realistic depictions of war which they are not
1: how many how many plates do you have in the collection
2: uh, the series itself encompasses 80 plates and we have them all on view and we have an 81st plate which is a working proof that is a, a, a print of the plate before it was before the etched title was added at the bottom. But also, as we talk about images of war, I don't want to overlook the exhibition that is in the West Gallery of um, of Samurai to Soldiers, Japanese Prince of War from 1830 to 1897, which I was delighted to be able to have at the same time because it creates, uh, first of all, it shows us, wonderful Japanese woodblock prints. And uh, more than one person in the gallery has shown, has suggested their possible relation to Japanese anime, which I think will be of interest to many people. More generally, historically, it shows a transition in the Japanese imagery of war from a period in which artists could not represent contemporary events to a change in dynasty that led to representation and reportage of Current wars, specifically the Sino-Japanese War uh, in the late 19th century, and these images, the Japanese images, unlike Goya, Japanese images were produced to be printed, widely disseminated, and and were extremely popular images. So, comparing these two shows, you not only get the a difference in approach to how war is represented, but you also see the you can also discuss how are these images used. You know, uh, Goya perhaps be undertook his series thinking that he might publish these. I think he did. But somewhere midway, he realized that that was not feasible. Um, whether it was because he thought there would be no market, whether it was because he didn't want to invest in the expense of producing an edition of images. I mean, imagine printing 80 individual etchings over and over again and creating them as a collection to sell. We don't know exactly why it wasn't published. The antithesis to that is, of course, these ja- Japanese images that were printed quickly to be sold, widely, widely distributed, and were sort of the news- newspaper images of the, di- of the day.
1: They're very colorful. They're, it's, it's a totally different kind of event walking into the rooms. You walk into the Goya exhibit, and here are these small monotint prints all there, and you walk into the the West Gallery in old college and all of a sudden you're assaulted with all the color. And it's just a remarkable exhibit because I mean Julie and I were talking, we were in there about you got the contrast of fictional things and real things from the thirteenth or fourteenth century that are displayed here in something from the eighteen thirty with Soldiers in 20th century dress. I mean, they're all Japanese. It, it, it's just wonderful, colorful way of showing this, if you will, this nexus in culture.
2: And I think with the Japanese samurai, I'd, I'd, I'd like to mention, first of all, the prints were loaned to us by Hongui Shin, who, who was a student who graduated from University of Delaware in art conservation last year, and who also has started his own gallery, Shin Gallery, in New York City. And it was curated by Anna Juliar, who is a PhD candidate in the Department of History of Art, and this year is at the Philadelphia Museum of Art uh, with a, uh, she has a fellowship. A, I believe, a fellowship, then, yeah. thank you, a <laughs> fellowship in the uh, in the Department of Prints and Drawings at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. So that is indeed a very much a student-driven um, uh, project.
1: There was one, one print I remember from there specifically, and I forget which one of you were, were talking with me about it, where you know, the Japanese are all there in their late 19th century garb, and the Chinese are surrendering to them in their almost caricature-ish traditional garb.
2: Exactly, and according to Anna, a scene that would have never have happened, even if they were costumed differently, because the Chinese who had to surrender, the general, had committed suicide. So it never took place. But again, it's images as propaganda.
1: Janice and Julie are telling us about these exhibits. They are examples of the kinds of things you can see in the university museums in Old College and in Mechanical Hall, and there's also the Mineralogical exhibit over in Penny Hall. Now, we just have a couple of minutes left, and, and we're talking to you on September 12th. You've got an event coming up on September 18th that I think you'd like to plug, don't you?
3: Yes, on September 18th at Mechanical Hall Gallery, beginning at 6 p.m., there will be an event that, that includes artists Sonia Clark and Marin Hassinger. It will begin with a improv performance outside the gallery with Marin Hassinger in the dance program. And then it will continue inside the gallery in an open conversation between Sonia Clark and Marin Hassinger, moderated by Kamara Holloway who is a colleague of ours in the History of Art Department, and there will be an opportunity for the anyone who comes to the opening that evening to engage with the artist in that open conversation and see the performance. And also we will have an exhibition catalog, which will be free to university ID holders.
1: Now the Goya... Exhibit also has a wonderful catalog that I'm holding a copy of here not that our listeners can see.
2: And a week later, on the 25th of September, uh, the Department of Art History has invited me to offer a a lecture on Goya's Imagery of War at 5.30. And then there is a reception in the exhibition that begins at 6. I will probably not be there at the opening. I'll still be lecturing. But people are welcome to come between 6 and 8 and enjoy the exhibition Uh, I'll be saying a few words about it also in the gallery as soon as I get there.
1: University Museums, another hidden treasure here in Newark, Delaware. Thanks, Janice. Thank you. And thank you, Julie.
0: Thanks for listening to Campus Voices, a collaboration between WVUD, the broadcast voice of the University of Delaware, and UD Information Technologies. The views expressed on this program are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official views or policies of WVUD, UD Information Technologies, or the University of Delaware. For more information about Campus Voices and to find archive copies of this and other episodes, visit our website. Using all lowercase letters, go to www.udel.edu campusvoices. We invite you to tune in every Thursday morning at 8.30 for Campus Voices on 91.3 FM, WVUD, and WVUD HD1, Newark, or online at wvud.org.